Okay, so we're in Mark's Gospel, and we are in chapter 6, and we're... We're going to be looking at the uh, the beheading of John the Baptist today. One of those gruesome stories in the Gospels, but one necessary to fulfill the purpose for which God brought our Lord Jesus here, and also to complete what the Gospel writers in recording this for us, intended. Now, we last left Jesus and his disciples as he was sending them out two by two. And he gave instructions as to how they were to go out, and we took note of all the various things there, that they were to to take nothing in their journey except uh, a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, and then to take sandals, but not even to put on two tunics. I mean, it was bare necessities that they were to go out in as they went on this uh, episodic event of preaching the gospel, casting out unclean spirits, and healing sick, all at the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in... In a little bit, they're going to come back and give a report as to how things went. But in between here, we have this account about John the Baptist and what took place. And we left them off at verse uh, 12 and 13. It says, They went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Now, it says in verse 14, King Herod heard of him. For his name had become well known. Now, in this whole scenario here, keep that verse in mind. It was Jesus that King Herod heard about. John the Baptist becomes the focus of everything, but it's all because of what he had heard about Jesus. And sometimes I think when we read this passage, you know, Jesus gets lost in in the whole thing because of all the things going on with John. But it's because of Jesus that these things occurred. And so when he heard these things, King Herod heard it uh, of his name, and his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers or these mighty works, this dunamis, he says are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah. And others said it is the the prophet, or one like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said again, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Now, it says twice there, Once in verse 14, he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And then in verse 16, he said. Both of those are in the imperfect tense. And that implies to us that it was a constant refrain from the lips of Herod of, 
anytime this subject came up about Jesus and all the mighty works that he was doing, that instead of acknowledging who Jesus was, he would just say, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And of course, it was common knowledge and common expectancy that when someone was raised from the dead, that they would have power to do many wonderful works, powers of healing and casting out of unclean spirits and so on. So that was of no surprise. But Herod, unwilling to acknowledge who Jesus was, just said, this is John the Baptist. Unwilling to acknowledge that he was the Messiah, said, well, this must be John the Baptist. Of course, you have to remember, as Tetrarch of Galilee, that he held court. He had many people in and around him, where, just as you would imagine in a king's court. Lots of talk going on. Uh, these stories about what was going on with Jesus up in, in the area of Galilee, all the things that were happening, the healings and so on, you know, all that made their way down to, to the king's court. And I say king, he was not a king in the real sense of the word. Um, that was a, a phrase that had come in, or a word that had come into common usage in that time, but he was not really a king. He was a tetrarch. He was under the authority of the Roman Caesar. And he knew that, but he held a lot of power nonetheless. And so the story goes on. He says in verse 16, this is John whom I beheaded. Now something intriguing jumps in right here because I is in the emphatic position. It's just as if John was saying through his guilty conscience, yeah, this is the guy that I beheaded. And he's risen from the dead. And he's going around doing all these things. Verse 17 goes on to then describe four. And he tells the account then. Now he goes into the historical account. Here's how it all came about. Here's what happened. Four. Herod himself... And this is Herod Antipas, by the way. Herod Antipas himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Now, um, I made a comment last week that this, this family of Herod was one mess. I'm going to give you just a little bit of it today. Because in this whole situation here, um, first off, you had a guy named Aristobulus. And he had a daughter, and her name was Herodias. All right? Plant that in your brain over here, over here. Next on the scene, we have Aristobulus had two brothers. Antipas and Philip. Okay? Herodias married her uncle, Philip. He was, um, I guess you'd say he'd lost favor with Caesar. He was just living in Rome. Herodias was a, uh, a visionary. 
she, you know, she, she wanted to be married to a, a ruler. She wanted to have status and so on. So in comes Herod into town as he's visiting Rome. And he meets up with Herodias. And he's intrigued with her and he wants to marry her. So you see now Philip has married his niece. Now Herod wants to marry his niece or their half niece. But he's already married to a girl named Eratus. So he makes this offer of marriage to Herodias, and she says, well, first you divorce your wife, and then I'll marry you, because she wanted that number one position. So he divorces Eratus, and off they go. So that's the scene that you have now in Galilee. (laughs) They're back in their ruling positions, and lo and behold, John comes on the scene preaching a gospel of repentance and the gospel of the kingdom, but he also said to Herod, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. He didn't mention about the fact that she was a niece, but he said, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Boy, did that ever not set well with Herodias. Now, there's just a really intriguing thing here because As I said, I, in verse 16, in the emphatic position, leads us to understand a little bit about the psychological makeup of Herodias, or excuse me, of of Antipas. Antipas just couldn't quite grasp John. He respected him. He was in awe of him. He feared him. And yet, he still wanted Herodias as his wife. Well, they had a, you know, before all of this happened, Aristobulus and Herodias had a daughter, and her name was Salome. And so that leads us up to the next little thing going on here. It says in verse 16, or 18 rather, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your, your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him. And wanted to kill him, but she could not. Why? It says in verse 20, because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. So there was a certain time period here in which Herodias had a grudge against John. In other words, you and I would say she had it in for him. And not only did she have it in for him, she was biding her time until she could take action against him. So it says then that she wanted to kill him, but she couldn't because of Herod, who feared John. But he also had this thing with Herodias. Now, the perplexity of the whole thing is, he says, knowing that he was a just and holy man. Now that's an amazing thing when we stop to think that through just what it was about John that held Herod Antipas in such perplexity over this man. Because first of all, it says he was a just man or a righteous man. That is in his character as to the kind of person he was, he was righteous. In his dealings with his fellow man, 
he had no blame against him. But not only was he a righteous person, not only did he just say, I'm going to do what is right, no matter what, he was also a holy man. A holy man would just indicate to us that he had a devotion to God in which he set himself apart. Of course, we know the word holy is often translated sanctify, to set apart, to devote oneself to God or to some particular thing. Of course, in the context here, it would be to the Lord God. I think it's moving and and helps us to understand that, you know, the potential is there always for people like you and I to be righteous people. And we can do what's right. We can live righteous lives. We can be respected in our community, in our local assembly. People who know us where we work all respect us because of our righteous conduct. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you've devoted yourself in a holy manner to God. Now that sets a man apart. That sets an individual apart. And it did so in the eyes of Herod. And he was in fear of John. He had great respect for him. But the perplexity of the whole thing was this Herodias. What am I going to do? He was in awe of John, respected him, feared him. But now I've got this wife who he went to great, by the way, went to great lengths to marry her because not only did he divorce Eratus, Eratus, who was a king in his own right, went back to her father and he brought war against Antipas. So he had to take his men and go fight a war against Eratus because of his actions. So, what happens? It says he did many things and he heard him gladly. The word gladly means with pleasure. He really, really thought a lot of John. But all oh, the turn of events in verse 21. Then an opportune day came. Oh boy. Oh man, just what Herodias had been looking for an opportune day. What was that opportune day? It was Herod's birthday. Herod's birthday, it says in verse 21. And he gave a feast. He gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Now, the, the, word, the word nobles there means great ones. And the... the um, the uh, high captains or the high officers were people, men in the army, in, in the military, who were captains over a thousands or officers over a, a group of a thousand men. So there would have been several of those because the army would have consisted of several thousand men. And then the chief, the chief ones, the chief men, the foremost, this leading men, the most prominent of the Galilean area. 
And all of these men had been invited for Herod's birthday. It was a men's meeting, stag. Not short men either. It was all the men, the leading men. And in this party, in this big celebration, this big banquet, he tells us there that in verse 22, that when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, then the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Verse 23 says, he also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Sounds like a pretty generous offer. I want us to turn back to the book of Esther, if you would, real quick. Esther, in chapter 5. We find that this is simply a, a common oriental custom for kings or rulers or those in authority to kind of boast and brag and, and show the power of their generosity. You look in chapter 5 and look at verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went up, uh, went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Down in verse 6, it says, At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. <clears throat> what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And then if you'll just turn over a page or so to chapter 7, they're finally now at the banquet. <clears throat> verse 1 says, And the king uh, and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Now, no one expected him or Antipas, the men, his chief men, and army generals and so on surrounding him, nobody expected him to literally fulfill this vow. But in Oriental custom, it just meant, I am a super generous man. And she knew better than to say, hey, I'm going to take you up on your offer. I want half the kingdom. She wasn't going to do that. She was going to ask for something, though. It just wasn't what Herod anticipated. Of course, I think like any mother and daughter, mama had planted into daughter's mind her hatred and her despite of John. And so when he says, I will give to you half my kingdom in verse 24, it says, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist 
it says in verse 25, immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly. This is an interesting word also. It's only used twice in Mark's gospel. It's from a compound word that means parry. That preposition that means around. Like a perimeter. It means to have grief all the way around you. And so they translate it exceedingly sorrowful or exceedingly grieved. Completely overwhelmed with grief. And if you look over in chapter 14, you'll find this word again used of the Lord Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 34. You remember the scene here where Jesus took him to the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 32, and he said, sit here while I pray. Verse 33 says he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. It's the same word. Jesus was completely surrounded, overcome, overwhelmed with sorrow. Even, he says, to death. Well, that helps us see not the scene with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was facing him. Think about Herod now and the sorrow that he was experiencing and the grief because he was caught. (laughs) He had a respect and an awe and a fear for John because he was a righteous and a holy man. And now comes after his open public oath to give whatever Salome wanted, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. So what could he do? What could he do? Well, it says, yet because, in verse 26, yet because of the oaths and because of, and by the way, because he had apparently said it more than one time, it's plural, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. He had to save face. What could he do but request the head of John the Baptist? And so verse 27 says, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. Now, this is where we stop for a moment. I'll see if I can turn this little thing on. Because you have the proximity of John the Baptist to where the banquet was going on. Where could that be? Well, most believe that it took place in, in, in a hilltop called... Did I get it now? See that, yeah, that thing there, just not showing it up real good. But if you can see, you see Jordan, and you see off to the left, 
right over the sea of Ga- uh, uh, the Dead Sea, right up over where it says Dead Sea, do you see Machiris? Yeah, it's right there. Is my finger? No, my finger didn't show up. <laughs> and I, I tried to find my pointer this morning, and I couldn't find it. Uh, you see the words Dead Sea? Right above it. Machiris. And it's off to the right. It was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this, maybe I'll, I think will show up a little better. That's some of the ruins of where it took place. There was a palace there. There was a fortress. And there was also a prison. And they were all located. And if I'm going to scroll down here now, if I can do this and find that real quick. I hope this one will show up. Um, I, I like the picture right there. Does that one show up very good? No, it doesn't. Wow. But you can see this little mountain down at the bottom here, and it's kind of small at the top. So it was a, a protected fortress on a hilltop. Most believe that this is where John was beheaded. This was where the banquet was taking place, and it made it possible for him to request John's head immediately after Salome requested it. Of course, through her the deviousness of her mother, Herodias. And so then, immediately the king sent out an executioner. He commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. A sad ending. A sad ending. It only makes me think of a couple of things. Number one here, the the word corpse just means something that has fallen down. It implies that The executioner went in, took John's head, cut it off, put it on a platter, and just left him laying there. And of course, later on, Matthew and Luke tell us about how the disciples went and found his body, and they took him out and gave him a proper burial. But it also makes me think about the manner in which the Lord Jesus is going to treat those who have been beheaded for the sake of the gospel, those who have lost their lives, it is virtually a guarantee of a place in his kingdom. Revelation tells us that John, the apostle, saw the souls of those beheaded And they said, how long, O Lord? Well, at that point in time, it wasn't going to be long until they would be delivered and they would be raised up to share in that glory of the Lord's rule. I said, try to emphasize a couple things this morning. Really, the big thing were the two words that describe John and his character. That he was righteous and he was holy.
You know, there are many, many righteous men. Many, for that matter, that aren't even believers. They have strong character. They do what's right. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They don't lie. They're faithful to their family and their wives. And, you know, the whole gamut that fulfills everything that speaks of what a righteous person is. But the real question then comes, are we also holy? Are we also characterized as one who is wholly devoted to God? And I don't mean holy in the H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Wholly dedicated to serving the Lord God. It's a double. What? I don't want to say double whammy. It's a... That's, that's not uh, respectful enough. I'm trying to emphasize the wholehearted devotion of one like John who garnered the respect of a man who came from a family that was so dysfunctional and so messed up you can't believe. I mean, this is just part of the family here. This just his three brothers, and the and the mess with their their niece and divorcing their wives and marrying his niece and so on. It was crazy. But he got he got Herod's Antipas's attention, and he respected John because of his righteous and holy character. That's what we need to strive for. That's what we need to be above everything else. I love righteousness. God loves righteousness. We ought to pursue righteousness. It's what we ought to strive for to be in our lives, in all of our dealings with our fellow man. But so ought we be towards God, holy, sanctified, completely set apart to Him. And when we are in that place, in that position, then we have God's attention upon us. He takes note of us. Let it be true of us today. Let's pray. Father, we, we're so enamored and so taken up by this man, John. The many people that responded to his gospel message. Those that were coming to him, apparently from what we understand in Scripture, but literally by the hundreds being baptized of Him, even having His own disciples that were still loyal to Him and following Him even after 
Jesus came on the scene. And even after his crucifixion and his resurrection. And Father, we just pray, God, that we might be like John. To be found to be men and women of character. Men and women who are righteous and holy. So that you might be well pleased with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.